Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. For more information and to donate online, go to 3cr.org.au. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. Tuesday Breakfast pays respect to Elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning. Welcome to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio. Summer school has ended. We're back to regular programming. Oh, you guys are owing, but you were all exhausted. (laughs) Still, we hope you enjoyed it. And if you missed any of the weeks, you can catch up on our podcast. You can just literally search Tuesday Breakfast on your podcast app or listen on the internet, I believe. Mm -hmm. The internet. (laughs) Wide. Well, <laughs> indeed, indeed. Mm. <laughs> How is everyone? <laughs> Psychotic. <laughs> We've got a full house here. Yeah, yeah. Today for yeah. the first and last time. Oh. oh. Do we have like a crying sound? I know, I no, I don't. No, the applause sound. <laughs> <laughs> That's all we have. Wow. Oh. <clears throat> wow. 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 Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. It's my last week for a while, and then it might soon be. Someone else's last week for a while. Yeah, well, we've all got life stuff coming up. Mm. Mm. Yeah. So yeah, so it's my last week is end of January, and yours is this week. Today is my last day Today because I am day. about to move to country Victoria. Mm-hmm. Don't say where. I'm not going to. Okay, <laughs> You've taught me so much about infosec. Thank you. <laughs> if I've learned anything from radio, it's never to say where I'm moving to. <laughs> but going rural. Mm, yeah. Mm. Mm. But anyway, we have a huge show today. Yes, we do. Um, starting early with an interview that Anya is doing. Mm, with um, <laughs> with Dr. Joyce Chia. <coughs> sort of getting my voice back. Dr. Joyce Chia, who's the Director of Policy at Refugee Council, about what the Medivac bill is and isn't and what misinformation we're being fed. Cool. I do like that you've actually just written the lies the government is trying to spread <laughs> in our run sheet. <laughs> yeah, I didn't even plan an interview for today, and then I read an article yesterday about um, a Christian port. Anyway, we'll get into that later. Mm-hmm. But I got so incensed, and I was like, this is wrong. People need to know the truth. So, <laughs> If we, only we I had a 90-minute slot on radio <laughs> to tell them the truth. With I mean, maybe, one day, one day. <laughs> oh, gosh. And then we're going to be joined live in the studio with um, by Madison Griffiths, and I'm so Woo. excited. Um, she's just created this awesome new podcast called Tender, and um, so we're going to have a bit of a chat about emotional abuse and um, gaslighting and intimate partner violence, mm. which, you know, trigger warning now. Yes. Mm. Thanks for that. Uh, at 7.55, we'll be hearing from Annette Benning on the phone, who is from IPAN, which is the Independent and Peaceful Australia Network, and she will be discussing the developments in Venezuela. 
So we have uh, jam-packed, and mm. we're so thankful for that. But Oh, wait. And then do not forget the last <laughs> guest. Oh, no. And then at 10 past 8, we'll be speaking to Carly Finley. Yay! Um, Is she coming in? She she was going to, but she's going to do a phone interview. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Which so always happens Kelly. with guests, because I think mm. they, you know, mm. get to the day before. They look at our like, pictures, oh. and they're like, oh, not with <laughs> Also, it's just so early. It's so early. I would I would want to do a phone interview mm. too if I was. Yeah. yeah. Um, but we'll be talking about her new memoir, Say Hello, uh, which is absolutely fantastic. I'm so excited mm. to be talking to her about it today. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Which you've been reading, and yes. we're waiting yeah. for you to. Um, I know. I know. <coughs> I've been holding on to it for too long. Yeah. I'll definitely <laughs> pass it on. Oh my god, you guys, she's actually sitting across from me and has the book out. Yes, <laughs> with notes and stuff. She's oh. actually carried it around with her. I went to the pub with George on the weekend and she had it with her. It was very oh cute. no, you're one of those people. What, that bring my books? Yeah, yeah. Yes. Get what I'm reading. Yeah. I mean, we, are, we all are. All just right. Do, just that was no judgment. Just Moving on from the personal attacks, <laughs> what's happening in the yes. news? <laughs> so, um, the first story we're going to be looking at is, um, sorry, let me just pull up my notes. So the Royal Commission into Institutional Abuse in the Disability Sector, a motion for a Royal Commission into Institutional Abuse in the Disability Sector was put forward by Western Australia's Greens Senator Jordan Steele-John. It passed in the Senate last week. There were fears the coalition would stall the motion, as shown by their tactic um, in last week's question time. But it passed in the House of Representatives on Monday, which was yesterday. The Morrison government still believes the states need to be consulted before the inquiry can begin. Jordan Steele John disputes this line of thinking and criticised the government's lukewarm commitment. Even with the support of the coalition, the Governor-General has the last say in consultation with the Prime Minister. So the next story we're going to look at is the robo-debt. Um, uh, before we do, we'd like to give a content warning as it covers sensitive information that may cause distress to our listeners. The numbers to call are Lifeline on 131114 and Beyond Blue on 1300 22 We'll also provide other numbers on our Facebook page, 3CRTUES, bracket one word. So the story comes from Shaila Modora. On the Triple J hack page, uh, more than 2,000 people have died after receiving a letter about Centrelink debts. Um, uh, Shalila cites the data from the Department of Human Services. The figures are from July 2016 to October 2018. The department does not list co- cause of death, but as Shaila notes, 663 of the cases were classified as vulnerable. Those considered vulnerable either had one or a combination of mental health, financial concerns, um, stable housing, and so on. They were also victims of domestic violence. The article notes this number could be higher, but the recipients may not feel safe or confident to report their concerns to authorities. At the time of their passing, the majority of the people were on Centrelink payments. However, Michael Keenan, the Human Services Minister, does not see a direct link between the notices and the deaths. The Green Senator, Rachel Seward, who Shalila quotes throughout the article, cautions us from making sweeping judgments, 
but she is interested in, in exploring whether the debt notices worsened the anxiety of an already marginalized group. If you're someone affected by the robo-debt, a website I recommend is Legal Aid. If you go to their Find Legal Answers, there's a list of frequently asked questions, including how to dispute a decision, how to lodge a complaint, as well as a number to call for further assistance. You can also check out the Unemployed Workers Union page. They provide information about social security, including your rights around job service providers, work for the door, filing complaints, job mutual obligations. We will upload direct links for birth websites on our Facebook page, which, as we mentioned, is 3CRTUES, Bracky, one word. Um, as we also mentioned at the top of the program, if any of the content discussed has caused you distress, please call Lifeline on 131114 and Beyond Blue on 1300 and SBS News has reported that an inquest will be held to investigate the deaths of two Aboriginal men during the Townsville floods. It is alleged that the deaths occurred while the two Palm Islander men, aged 21 and 23, were trying to avoid being taken into custody. As a result, they are being considered deaths in custody, however this might be subject to change. The men were apparently involved with looting at a Dan Murphy's bottle shop and fled into the floods when police, police arrived at the scene. The names of the two men are being kept private at the request of their families. Um, and we also wanted to mention that this week, uh, it ends today, it's been Oko Ribbon Week, uh, which is an initiative supported by the National Family Violence Prevention Legal Service Forum and its member organisations across Australia. The campaign raises awareness of the devastating impacts of family violence in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities and calls for action to end the violence against Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, especially women and children. There's a really uh, informative and important article on Indigenous X by Luke Pearson, who is the founder and CEO, and it basically talks, it's, t it's called You Can't Talk About Violence in Aboriginal Communities, and it was shared by uh, the Feminism and Decolonisation Facebook page, mm -hmm. um, and it just explains the sort of issues around uh, when um, non-Indigenous people talk about family violence in Indigenous communities and why it is harmful and how it is used um, to kind of justify really like horrible um, policies or, or horrible ideas, but the ways it, it can be talked about and the work that is already being done within Indigenous communities to address the issue. So mm -hmm. we can share that on our Facebook page as well. Um, <coughs> sorry. At this point, I also want to mention that last um, Tuesday was the 11th year anniversary of the apology that was um, that was given by Kevin Rudd um, 11 years ago, and we just think at Tuesday breakfast that it's really important to acknowledge the incredibly devastating trauma and pain the removal of Aboriginal kids from their families has caused and is still causing. Um, in terms of that, it's important to note that the rates of Indigenous child removal today are higher than at any other point in Australia's history, even though Aboriginal kids make up just 5.5% of children aged 0 to 17 years in Australia. They represent 35% of those placed in out-of-home care. And if anyone listened to our prison abolition special um, last week on, uh, on our summer school program, um, there was a lot of... Um, talk about why out-of-home care detention is is the pipeline to prison, and I think um, this is all really important to acknowledge and um, keep in mind.
Let the mythical tarantula bite you at the 2019 Taranta Festival. Five days of southern Italian and Mediterranean music, food and culture from March 13 to 17. Including the exclusive Melbourne concert by the 2018 Songlines Music Awards Best Group in the World. Canzoniere Grecanico Salentino, direct from Italy via Wamadelay. At the Thornbury Theatre, Friday, March 15. The festival includes talks, workshops, concerts and parties. For information and tickets, visit tarantafestival.com.au Presented by Devella, a 3CR supporter. Camp Anarchy is on over the long weekend, March 9th to 11th at Camp Eureka in Yarra Junction. The aim is to bring anarchists, families, friends and those interested together. Come share ideas, skills, food, music and laughter. There is a bunch of radical workshops and skill shares over the weekend. Check out our website, campanarchy.org or contact us on info at campanarchy.org or via the Anarchist Events Facebook page. Camp Anarchy is a 3CR supporter. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR with Ayan, George, Lauren and myself, Anya. We're very pleased to now be joined by Dr. Joyce Chia to talk about um, the Medivac bill, which there's been a lot of noise about over the last two weeks or so. Um, Dr. Joyce Chia is the Director of Policy from the Refugee Council of Australia. Thank you so much for joining us today, Joyce. Not a problem. Looking forward to it. <laughs> I know it's 6:40 and oh, some, somewhere around that in Adelaide. So <laughs> extra Adelaide, thank you yes. for joining us this morning. Um, <laughs> yeah, let's start uh, with the basics. What is the Medivac bill? What does it do? Right, the bill is really has one object, which is to save lives. The main purpose of the bill is to convert what has to date been a completely arbitrary, completely. Um, obscure process mm. by which the minister can transfer people to Australia for medical treatment, but in practice very rarely does and is obstructive until the very last minute mm. into a process that at least has some medical advice involved. So two independent doctors can make the recommendation before the minister has to consider um, mm. whether that person needs to be brought in. Now the minister still has powers to refuse and then it goes up through advice a panel of mm. um, qualified doctors who are then able to investigate the situation further. So the whole idea is really just to give doctors the ability to actually independently verify the situation of people in Manus and Nauru. Mm. And so the process isn't entirely run by really bureaucrats and doctors on the ground who are paid by the government and who even when they have recommended quite um, consistently, when they have recommended transfers, have been ignored. Mm. And there's been quite a lot of conflicting information that's been floating through the media about the bill and, um, you know, how it allows for an influx of people into the country, yada, yada, yada. Can you talk to us about that? How much of that is true or is cause for concern? I think most refugee advocates would know by now that the government has no real interest in the facts in this space. Mm. Um, Look, there's been an enormous amount of noise for what is, in fact, an extremely modest measure and it's very counterproductive in many levels because what is not going to happen is that people are going to start flooding into Australia 
to be absolutely honest, the number um, of people now in Madison Arrow is actually pretty small anyway. So an influx of a thousand people is not an influx mm. in my view, <laughs> considering the size of Australia. Mm. But the reality is it's probably going to be more of a trickle than a flood. And what really concerns us is that there's still quite a process to go through. There's still a lot of medical work that needs to be done. Mm. And we do not want to give... Um, both advocates and the people themselves in Madison are the impression that this will be quick and easy because it will not be quick and easy mm. and it will probably only apply to a very small handful. So all of the rest of that noise is exactly that. It's political noise, it's political theatre, it's incredibly unhelpful, but it is very much a war being waged in the face of an election. Mm. And unfortunately, refugees have always been the victims of politics in the wake of an election. Mm. And that's unfortunately a long, long history of fear-mongering um, by both parties, to be frank, mm. all the way through um, Australian history, the world history, that refugees and migrants are something to be afraid of, rather than mm. people who need protection. Yeah, and I, th I guess that's what I was sort of hoping to touch on next. Since the bill has passed, um, there was that announcement by Scott Morrison that they'll be reopening the detention centre on Christmas Island. Mm -hmm. And yesterday there was an announcement by Christian Porter that hundreds of asylum seekers on Manus Island and Nauru will undergo fresh security and character assessments. And that god-awful video that Scott Morrison has put out being mm -hmm. like, you can't come into the country, etc. What does this say about the overall narrative about asylum seekers that the government is trying to push? How's, how has that sort of changed over time? I think what we're seeing now is the desperate throw of the last night of the government that thinks it's going to lose the next election. Mm. And it's absolutely um, rank fear-mongering, quite frankly, and it's absolute worst because, in fact, has already been happening for a long time has been these transfers to Australia, not simply for medical reasons in some cases, but otherwise. And the reality is that they aren't released into the community in some kind of uncontrolled process. In fact, there are more controls on people coming from Madison and Nauru than almost any other person in mm. Australia. Mm. And the level of scrutiny and control of these people is something that I think would actually outrage most of them if they knew it. And most of them will be coming into a situation where they are detained and even when they are not formally detained, there are still circo security guards and various um, officers who often monitor them. And we hear of situations where there are men in motels with very sick um, very sick men who are literally sharing a room 24-7 you know, a border force officer who sits inside, essentially, their living room every day watching them. So I think the idea that they're going to be roaming the streets and, you know, lock up your children kind of rhetoric that we're hearing is absolutely outrageous because these people are under a level of control that no Australian citizen would ever accept for any other Australian citizen. Mm. And they get away with it because they are refugees and not citizens. Mm. Yeah, and... I guess despite all of these fear-mongering tactics that the government has been trying to push, there seems to be a shift in public perception of the treatment of asylum seekers. A, a more, I guess the, the, the approach now is you know, seeing them as humans first than, than political football. Would you agree with that, or do you think that has happened, and why has that happened? Oh, cool. there's, there's certainly always hope, and I'm always tempering it with, um, you know... Uh, I suppose we've been here before a few times mm -hmm. and we know that the government is going to throw 
absolutely everything it can at us to change public opinion back. But the reality is I don't think Australians are mean at all. I think Australians just don't know what's happening over there and that's because mm-hmm. there has been a pretty concerted effort to make sure we don't know what's going on there. And I think if most Australians ever sat down with these people, their hearts would be broken at what we've done to them. So I do think that people are starting to see the stories and realise that there is no end to this policy because these people have been there for over five years and we're still not really any closer to the so-called solution of mm-hmm. any of them. And we have gone, we've spent over $6 billion effectively punishing 3,000 people for the exercising the human right of trying to find a safe place to live. Mm-hmm. I think that is an absolute outrage and I think when Australians actually understand that, mm-hmm. their minds are turning to that fact and I think you can be scared for so long and then you realise there actually isn't anything to be scared of mm-hmm. um, and that what we need to be scared of is that we are losing our heart and our moral mm-hmm. compass as mm-hmm. a nation. Absolutely. And so now that the bill has passed, um, I guess what are the next steps from here in order to keep this momentum going? Yeah, I think it's absolutely critical we keep the momentum going because we have seen the government throw so much dirt at this bill mm. um, and it will do absolutely everything in its power to wage a war on border protection. And that has the worst possible consequences if we get into that. So I think what the Australian public who care about this issue need to keep messaging, particularly to candidates in the upcoming federal election, mm-hmm. but to their MPs now in particular, is that they do care about this issue because the very reason we're allowed to have done this to the people in the first place is because politicians simply do not believe that we care about refugees and that there are more votes in demonising and punishing these people and protecting them. Now, until we change that equation in their mind, mm. they're going to keep coming back and back to this position where these people are suffering because we are simply unable to vote for them. Mm. I think that's a, that's a perfect note to end on. Thank you so much for joining us today, Joyce. Not at all. Thank you. Transitions Film Festival returns to Cinema Nova this February with a selection of cutting-edge documentaries about what it means to be human. Featuring local and international documentaries, the festival covers social and technological innovations, big ideas and changemakers leading the way to a better world. Themes include art, activism, climate change, food revolutions, artificial intelligence and the future of our planet. Transitions Film Festival, February the 21st to March the 8th at Cinema Nova. Tickets from transitionsfilmfestival.com. A 3CR supporter. for human rights, indigenous sovereignty and climate justice. Our destination is Manus Island. Join us for the Freedom Flotilla. Sailforjustice.org. Get on board. A 3CR supporter. We appreciate like you mob and all the people coming and visit us and doing stuff like this, you know. It's very good. It keeps a positive mindset in our mind, you know, and we really appreciate it. Because of her we can, yeah. I wanna be a better, better man, yeah.
Beyond the Bars is 3CR's annual prison project, giving voice to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander inmates across Victoria. You can listen to audio from this year and previous years online anytime. How do you rehabilitate someone? They just put you in a cell and tell you this is how long you're going to do and it's meant to rehabilitate you, you know. Rehabilitation starts when you get out. That's when your life begins again, doesn't it? In here, your life's on hold. Just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars. Or if you'd like us to post you a free CD, contact the station on 03 9419 When I first come to this jail, was about 10 years ago and I was a young one. A whole heap of young ones come off the truck there the other day and they call me Auntie Marlene. So it helped me recognise and realise that I pulled myself up like, yeah, they're starting to look up to me so I've got to represent and do the right thing now. Just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars. Like an ancestor, you'll know way back when. Cause I'm a queen with color, with color, with color. And you're a king, my brother. We know you love our 3CR Radical Radio t-shirts, and so do we. They're 100% cotton and Australian-made, and you can get one for just $30. They come in black, dark grey, and a cool light grey. To nab one of these beauties, drop into the station at 21 Smith Street, or order by phoning 94198377, or you can visit us online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Come on, you know you want one. I just think that it's ironic that the state of Victoria want to treaty with Aboriginal people but have no issue in destroying our sacred sites. War is devastating on the environment. In peacetime, the military is a huge user of fossil fuels, a huge driver of nuclear energy and ultimately the architect of nuclear weapons. Subscribe to 3CR in 2019, fighting for social justice and environmental change. And to all the people that are so afraid of the solutions to climate change that they choose to live in denial instead, the current solutions to the climate emergency are much easier to cope with than the outcomes that will come if we don't. Feed Radical Radio. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. Follow! 3CR broadcasters present over 100 radio programs every week, including a diverse range of community language shows. Come to more at 3CR Community Radio. Please subscribe now. Just come on to 3CR Community Radio. Araja al Ishtrakal an. Ningal ungalin samuha vanali 3CR ay kertu kondir kondir kal. Inre inayingal. Están escuchando Radio Comunitaria 3CR. Suscríbete ahora. Metsuketsek Radio i Gairanin oratanguda melbumi hai kaotin. Hima artanakrevetsek ipur 3CR antam. Support the station that gives your community a voice. Subscribe to 3CR. 
You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio, 855am on your dial. Or perhaps you're listening via the website, in which case, very tech savvy of you. We are joined live in the studio now by Madison Griffiths. I'm so excited. Madison is a producer, a writer who's had work published in The Guardian, Vice, Sydney Morning Herald and SBS, among many other places. She's the online editor of VoiceWorks magazine and most recently the creator and presenter of the podcast Tender. Madison is joining us this morning to discuss her podcast and look... A lot of other things. <laughs> thank you for coming in, no, especially so early. Me. Oh, it's so fine. It's it's good for me to get up. <laughs> I really admire those people. Take it all in your stride. Yeah. <laughs> so, Tender, um, mm-hmm. for listeners who haven't yet listened to it, um, I will just start by saying I highly, highly, highly recommend it. I tell everybody to listen to it. I think it is a exceptionally brave, um, really raw and just beautifully written like you are an incredible writer the writing in tender is um i just i cry at train stations and laugh at train stations and oh, thank you so just much. feel it all on the train really which is where i listen to my podcast <laughs> um so i i'm always interested in why people decide to do to undertake these huge projects like why did you decide to make tender um i got to my and and i should say before we start getting into it, i will be discussing um i may be discussing um things pertaining to domestic violence, so a little bit of a content warning here. Um, but I got to my three-year leaving anniversary, mm-hmm. which was December 23rd this year, and I sort of sat with that and I was reflecting on the last month, which, if you've listened to the podcast, was the probably the most tumultuous um, period of time for me. And I thought about the fact that I had um, I had recorded my partner at that time on my phone as a way of believing myself because I couldn't believe that the abuse was happening so a friend of mine recommended I record him um, and the following day listen back and it was terrifying it was a terrifying experience Mm. but it felt really exciting and I felt ready to reclaim that medium of audio um, and to tell it my way Mm. and I just couldn't have achieved that through articles, I couldn't have achieved that through visual art. It seemed like the the most appropriate medium for me. Yeah. And so for listeners who don't know, because I've realised as we're speaking that I did not set that up properly, (laughs) what is Tender? (laughs) So Tender is an audio documentary um, that centres around what happens when women leave abusive relationships. So it focuses on um, small and huge gestures that women make to reclaim space, to get to know themselves again. For me, I think it started with a haircut and um, moving into a share house and those sort of little little things. And I use um, cultural and social references to frame my experiences throughout as well. So it's not necessarily meant to be a resource in terms of the like immediate mm. um, get help narrative, but it is it is meant to be empowering. Mm. Um, it definitely is um, very empowering, and I guess we'll get onto um, that idea of recognition and that sort of stuff soon. But um, I am also interested in your decision to be as open and as raw as you have been. Was that difficult to decide to do? Absolutely. I, I wouldn't say it's something I naturally decided to do. Mm. Um, once I started speaking, it all sort of fell out. 
and um and it was only afterwards I remember sitting in the shower after I think three episodes and I just felt so tired like mm. so exhausted um and I was just thinking wow I'm really uh, it's not just that I'm going back into that that um space to to I guess relive these experiences but I'm doing so in a way that is confusing and in a way that wasn't done before because in the past it wasn't my story it was his story so feeling that um was equal parts overwhelming and exciting and um also incredibly exhausting Mm. and that what you just said that it was his story and not yours and this idea of you having to actually record him to listen back and all of that there's this that thread throughout the episodes and throughout the documentary about it um, taking away your ability to know yourself Um, and that was really it's it's chilling to listen to because you you put it so well um, that I think a lot of women can recognize emotionally abusive behaviors in in toxic relationships that they've had when hearing you talk about it Um, I guess now we are able to talk more about emotional abuse and I'm wondering there was, well, for a lot of women there probably still is, but historically there has been a, a lack of public understanding of the impacts of emotional abuse and gaslighting and these kinds of behaviours. Did that lack of public understanding impact on your ability to recognise what was happening and to kind of take action for yourself? And Absolutely. Yeah. I um, I used to study law very briefly um, and I remember going to the magistrate's court on a Friday and hearing... Um, about this this man who was essentially being told by by um, the magistrate that um, verbal abuse is abuse, mm. and I remember sitting there thinking, "Wow!" And I, I was sort of right in the crux of this um, abusive relationship at the time, and it was a really strange feeling mm. because it, uh, there's so many question marks. Um, but gaslighting is having having a moment at the moment which um sounds really terrible and but i mean that in the sense that people are acknowledging um large-scale gaslighting like the way you know politicians talk about events and more interpersonal gaslighting and the effects of it um and for me that was the most terrifying part of my relationship was that i i um and again content warning here this is quite um confronting but I I would ask him to hit me because I needed to feel that Mm. I needed to be told I needed to understand this as abuse I knew it was abuse I um I but I couldn't see that it was abuse and I wanted other people to be able to see and say leave um so yeah it's it's been really quite incredible for me now to reflect on on that the unique trauma of grieving and losing yourself because you're left as this kind of shell of a person and mm. you're thinking how can I climb out of this space mm. with integrity it's not just climbing out for survival reasons but climb out with dignity with with um you know with feeling like I I didn't just lose three years of my life mm. um I didn't go to hypnotherapy sessions to resolve my anger issues for no reason you know there's um I needed to acknowledge my own agency and part of that meant being really honest about this stuff yeah um and also being terrified by it Mm. and getting to that truth I guess because that is a really confronting truth to recognize that you are in an abusive relationship but as you talk about so much in the podcast he took away your ability to see truth and to know 
what was and wasn't real and that yeah it's a um, absolutely that's the power of it um mm. and it's it's so awful like i'm even i'm watching um married at first sight is my chosen poison mm. at the moment and i'm i'm really i'm finding the the sort of the really subtle forms of gaslighting on that show excruciating to watch mm. because you can see these women and it is such a like hilariously patriarchal heterosexual manifestation of love if that's what you call it but you see you do see these women um feeling something and then sitting with that and thinking oh no I'm not I was wrong even though it felt so right and mm. I'm sure I felt that way it's it's really oh I, my blood boils watching that but that is and I you know this is what I why I was so um Oh, I don't know how to how to say this. But I'm so <laughs> thrilled to be interviewing you, particularly about this topic, because it there is such a clear, strong link between the patriarchal, heteronormative society that we live in, particularly as women, and the prevalence of emotional abuse and gaslighting. And as I said before, like what woman hasn't experienced? Hopefully, not to the extent that you experienced it, but some element of that. And we live in a society that simultaneously paints women as hysterical over emotional creatures but punishes them for having being honest about their true feelings and asking for things and saying i'm going to sit in my truth this is my truth absolutely is our society setting us up for this kind of like absolutely that's a really 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 good point and um I like I mentioned before in terms of of politicians and whatnot you see you see the way these people in power um underride the confidence or the mm-hmm. agency of of people in marginalized bodies by declaring their words as truth and when you start noticing that it's a really scary realization mm. um and for a lot of people like for for, for me in in my um relationship I felt I was immune because I was, you know, I I, I was the person I am today to, to a large extent. Mm-hmm. I was a feminist and I was, you know, I was staunch about a lot of matters and it, it, it all, it felt a little strange to then reflect and think, hang on a minute, I'm, <laughs> how am I in mm. this situation? So now to sort of look back and see the the global large-scale benefits of gaslighting and the way it's, the way it's exploited to undermine um, feminized, marginalized bodies is terrifying. And people will, I hope people are starting to notice that. Mm. I, I really, really do. Um, because it's it's so violent. It's such an insidious violence. Mm. I almost don't, I feel like we've got time for like one more question. <laughs> I'm frantically looking through my questions thinking, what can I, um, I guess, ultimately, um, I took a lot from your podcast as a woman who has been in relationships that have been emotionally on the spectrum of abusive or violent. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's it is brilliant and incredible to hear your experience reflected, particularly by somebody who has come out the other side and is such a strong, warm, wonderful person. Um, is that why you did it? What was your... What was your rationale for making this podcast and putting it out there? Absolutely. I really appreciate that. And um, I I did do it for that reason. I mean, I have been... Since I started writing about um, these sort of forms of violence, I have received the most incredibly raw and 
um, brave emails and messages from women all around the world who have said that, that they've told me their story. And um, there was one moment that I read recently. Um, a woman had, had sort of, and this was before I started the podcast, she had written this whole um, essay essentially declaring what happened and then she wrote, I was going to apologise um, about how long this was but I, I'm trying not to do that anymore. Oh. And that really sat with me and that was sort of two days before I started this podcast and I thought if I can be so blatantly unapologetic and people can see me in my life now with my pets and, you know, we, ridiculous things like that, um, just just living mm. in a way that is so um, normal according to my standards, that will all feed into it. That's important. I wanted to put a face to the name. I wanted to reclaim that um, my smile. I wanted mm. to reclaim my energy. And the more people saw me um, just, yeah, just, just, just on the news feed as a person that mm. isn't hiding in the shadows or doubting themselves, um, the more important I felt about my work and the more I felt people could, could resonate. Um, yeah, because we're all just waiting to be given permission to, to show who we truly are. And I wasn't going to wait anymore and I wanted people to see that oh my gosh I think I'm gonna cry <laughs> that was absolutely beautiful Madison thank oh, you so thank much. You so much and thank you for listening and and being so incredibly supportive I really appreciate yeah. it I'm gonna put a link to tender up I mean if you follow me on Twitter you've seen it all over the place but we'll put <laughs> it up on our Tuesday Brecky Facebook page and um thank you again awesome thank you is a community radio license holder. What you hear on community radio is governed by the community radio codes of practice. The codes of practice cover matters relating to program content, including local content, news, current affairs, Australian music, programs for children, and the responsibilities associated with broadcasting by and for the community. They also cover aspects such as community access and participation in the operation of this station. Copies of the code are available from the 3CR website. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash who we are. Let the mythical tarantula bite you at the 2019 Taranta Festival. Five days of southern Italian and Mediterranean music, food and culture from March 13 to 17 including the exclusive Melbourne concert by the 2018 Song Alliance Music Awards Best Group in the World, Cantoniere Grecanico Salentino, direct from Italy via Wamadalai, at the Thornby Theatre, Friday, March 15. The festival includes talks, workshops, concerts and parties. For information and tickets, visit tarantafestival.com.au. Presented by Devella, Patricia Sporta. Welcome back to Tuesday Breakfast um, on 8.55am, 3CR Community Radio. It is that time of the morning where we discuss alternative news. 
Um, we normally play a sting, but for some reason the sting has disappeared from our window. So that's annoying. Um, no, it's here. So. Yes, such a great song. Thank you, Shirley. So that's by Shirley Ellis, if anybody wants to download this song and whatnot. So on Alternative News today, we will be looking at um, the the situation that happened with Ilhan uh, Ilhan Omer, so the backlash of um, the events, well, the events that led up to the backlash. So just some information, um, what happened prior. So this information I uh, sourced from Jewish Post. So in June, so it started with a tweet um, that resurfaced that Ilhan had put out in 2012. So the person that uh, found that tweet and shared it, um, that's someone who is conservative. So I think it's important to note because agendas do matter. So the tweet that she had put up said, Israel has hypnotized the world. May Allah awaken the people and help them see the evil doings of Israel. So why is this tweet considered problematic and by some anti-Semitic? So Jews have historically been stereotyped as like evil, hypnotic, cunning. These are tropes that are now widely recognized as um, anti-Semitic. So Ilhan might have been speaking about Israel's human rights failures, which, as you know, has been documented by human rights organizations such as Human Rights Watch, Amnesty, Human Rights Council, and so on. But it was her use of the words evil and hypnotic to describe Israel that led to accusations of anti-Semitism. So there there were a few, I could go on, but there was maybe two more tweets but the tweet that um, catapulted this issue we I think is when she shared a tweet by Greenwald um, the journalist American journalist Glenn Greenwald who sort of came to her defense his thing was why are foreign why is why are US politicians so concerned with um, defending foreign nations than than they are when it comes to supporting the free speech of Americans. So she shared that tweet and underneath wrote, it's all about the Benjamin's baby. And she included uh, musical notes. And I think that's important to discuss because for those who are on Twitter, when you do that, that suggests it's a song that you're talking about. It's all about the Benjamins is a song by Puff Daddy in the 90s. Really great song. But that song, um, so when she put that out, uh, someone called Batya Ongar Sagan, who is the opinion editor of Forward, the Forward, sorry, a, magaz- a U.S. magazine that caters to a Jewish majority audience, accused Ilhan of using anti-Semitic tropes and criticized her for suggesting U.S. politicians are in the pockets of pro-Israeli lobby groups. So um, after that, Ilhan respond- responded to Sagan's comments with the acronym. I, uh, APAC, so A I P A C, 
APAC stands for American Israel Public Affairs Committee. APAC are also a pro-Israeli lobbying group. So this set of this set of um, uh, what we've seen as uh, I guess a backlash, but the interesting t- thing to note is the backlash had bipartisan support. Mm-hmm. So, if you, so people from mm-hmm. the d- democratic mm-hmm. establishment, but it's also important to note it was the elites of the democratic mm-hmm. establishment um, were outraged and were like, you know, that's anti-Semitic. You've got to apologise. Um, Ilhan ended up apologising um, and said that she would do more readings and that she is listening but that she is holding strong and I think it's important mm. to note that her use of holding strong as in I'm going to infer and say holding strong means she still believes what she said mm-hmm. which is that we should question um, the power of lobbying groups and the importance of speaking out. Mm-hmm. So there are three camps um, in this debate. The first camp is what Ilhan said was anti-Semitic. The second camp is Ilhan was pointing out the reality of pro-Israeli lobbying and she was right to call them out. The third camp, which I belong to, um, believe her wording was poor, clumsy, but the reality of pro-Israeli lobbying is a conversation that should be had. Mm. So I throw it to you, Gallies, gals. I mean, <laughs> some fifties goodness. Um, like, would we even be having this conversation if she wasn't a black mm, Muslim woman? Yes. Like, at the mm. end of the day, yeah. Alexandria Ocasio Cortez says things that are broadly inflammable um, to the Republican side of the debate, and that a lot of Democrats even would pr- probably disagree with. Um, but she's not black, mm. and she's not Muslim. And she's got a great red lipstick. Yeah, and so people are not calling for her head in the same way that they are Ilhan's. Mm. Mm. Um, yeah. yeah, and it's like what you mentioned before, Ayan, that it was brought to light by a Republican. So being aware mm. that, that there might be an agenda there and sharing that information mm. and trying to tear her down yeah. for mm. those reasons. Yeah. That makes perfect sense, but the Democratic Party throwing her under the bus just um, the outrage at her words and not the outrage at the pro-Israeli lobbying and campaigning that's been mm. happening. That's the, the biggest cognitive dissonance that I've, you know, I don't know how to deal with. But yeah. it is a very, it's part of that very, um, the Israeli lobby, mm-hmm. um, the ability that they have, or the, the ability that they've shown to conflate anti-Semitism with anti-Zionism mm. At the end of the day, you can be against Israeli imperialism and not against Jewish people. Mm-hmm. And that is my understanding of Ilhan's politics is mm. that is what it is. Yeah. Um, but there is not enough nuance allowed in any debate about anti-Zionist mm. politics right. to say you are not being offensive to Jewish people. You're not, mm. you know... Anyway, the fact that mm. the nuance has been removed from that debate means that as soon as somebody says anything that is against the Israeli lobby, against the Israeli government, accusations of anti-Semitism are thrown around. And then as soon as that happens, mm. everybody freaks out. And of course they do. Yeah. But I think the irony of that is that ultimately the Republican Party at the moment is enabling 
the biggest rise of neo-Nazism that we have seen in the Western world mm. in decades outside mm. of Europe, Western Europe. Yeah. Um, we have seen people murdered at synagogues. We have seen mm. our, you know, the our ugh, <laughs> the U.S. president um, cozying up to people who run neo-Nazi publications, Breitbart, mm-hmm. you know, members of neo-Nazi organizations that are hailing Hitler at Trump rallies. Mm-hmm. If anybody mm-hmm. is anti-Semitic, oh my gosh. Absolutely. <laughs> and both conversations can be had. Anti-Semitism does exist. Absolutely. But what Israel is doing to the Palestinians is mm. also a conversation that needs to be had. Mm. And Ilhan isn't the only person that this has happened to. Mm. Like Angela Davis, mm. she was nominated, yeah. well, she won a Human Rights Award, but then that award was rescinded um, because there was an outcry from um, uh, pro-Israeli groups and members of the Birmingham community. Mm. But thankfully, she was allowed to keep the award and she ended up taking it. So that's cool. But it's happened to also Matt Lamont, who works for CNN. He was, a, um, I guess, not a reporter, like a contributor to mm-hmm. CNN. So he spoke out. He made a speech. And in that speech, he talked about... He talked about taking action mm. and, you know, it was a very pro-Palestinian speech. Mm. He ended up getting fired. So mm. there, there is speaking out does have consequences. Mm. And it's also important to note that Ilhan, her identity is intersectional. As you mentioned, mm. Lauren, she's, she's Muslim, she's black, she's an immigrant. So, of course, she would be um, sensitive and to the plight of mm. oppressed communities, mm. right? And the hypocrisy of Trump mm. to, and yeah, tell her off. And well, to, like call to, to call for her to be fired. Yeah. Um, and I'll just point out that Jeremy Corbyn is a, ma- a white man mm. who often attracts criticisms of being anti-Semitic, mm. and I'm not well-versed enough in his work to know whether or not he has said things that are, like, I don't, I actually don't know. But the calls for him to be um, to be chastised or reined in from his quote unquote anti Semitic mm. rhetoric right. um, has never reached the level of backlash oh. that it has reached for Ilhan and I think that is a fact that is inescapable mm. and we can't And she's Muslim as well yeah. and her her nominate her win her being in the Congress is already like how did we let her in Mm. so she's already on shaky ground to begin with Mm. let alone now she's supporting an oppressed group it's Mm. and but it's interesting um there's an article by i want to make sure i have his name right um y o a v yov letivin l-i-t-v-i-n um it's an article in al jazeera and we'll share it on our facebook but he talks about um Sorry, I'm just drawing a blank. But he, he, so basically he is in support of Ilhan and what's happened to her. But he really details like who APAC are. And even in APAC's mission statement, which I will um, read out, but in the mission statement, they say strengthen, um, protect and promote the U.S.-Israeli relationships in ways that enhance the security of the United States and Israel, right? Mm. So APAC does not give money to politicians. So that's important to um, 
uh, put out there. So they don't give money, but what they do is they encourage their donors to get involved in the election process. Mm. And how the donors spend their money is up to them, right? So lobbying groups do exist, and they do play an important role, especially bringing issues to the forefront. But when it comes to issues that will ultimately oppress people, like it's important to speak out. I thought that was part of the democratic system when, mm-hmm. when you know, you call a spade a spade. and Yeah, so the, uh, we thought that was important. And also Ilhan also questioned Alia Abrams, who is now America's envoy to Venezuela. So she mm. brought up his yeah that was track a good record out. yeah yeah mm. of like supporting um, South American despots and mm. yeah so Ilhan is out here kicking this goals. is great yeah we're big fans of Ilhan she's really yeah, yeah. She's Ilhan already you're listening you've always got a spot in um, <laughs> Ilhan is my cousin now <laughs> <laughs> all Somalis pretend like we're related okay we'll be back with um, Annette Penning um, sorry Annette Bennett from IPAN real soon. Camp Anarchy is on over the long weekend, March 9th to 11th, at Camp Eureka in Yero Junction. The aim is to bring anarchists, families, friends and those interested together. Come share ideas, skills, food, music and laughter. There is a bunch of radical workshops and skill shares over the weekend. Check out our website, campanarchy.org, or contact us on info at campanarchy.org, or via the Anarchist Events Facebook page. Camp Anarchy is a 3CR supporter. I just think that it's ironic that the state of Victoria want to treaty with Aboriginal people but have no issue in destroying our sacred sites. War is devastating on the environment. In peacetime, the military is a huge user of fossil fuels, a huge driver of nuclear energy and ultimately the architect of nuclear weapons. Subscribe to 3CR in 2019, fighting for social justice and environmental change. And to all the people that are so afraid of the solutions to climate change that they choose to live in denial instead. The current solutions to the climate emergency are much easier to cope with than the outcomes that will come if we don't. Feed Radical Radio. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. Follow, follow the sun. Which way the In 2016, 3CR published a book to celebrate the station's 40th birthday. Years in the making, Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR, is a visually stunning account of the people and ideas that make up this dynamic station. At 300 pages, the book includes hundreds of images and over 50 features on programs, people, music and technology from across the decades. 3CR's Radical Radio book is now on sale for just $30. You can get your copy of 3CR's book at the station during business hours at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. Or online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. 
get a piece of your own history on sale for just $30. 3CR's Radical Radio is available now. Welcome back to Tuesday Breakfast. The time is 8.05 or 8.04, depending on where you're at. No, it's, uh, what is the time? It's 8.04. Because, <laughs> you know, okay, the reason I say that, listeners, is because we've got a screen in front of us, that, and then we've got the actual time. So I always get confused, and that's I'm sticking to that excuse. Um, so you're listening to Tuesday Breakfast 3CR Community Radio. Uh, there was two songs that we played early on. The first one by was by P. Unique, um, Queen with Color. Uh, she's a South Sudanese artist, uh, rapper. She's incredible, beautiful. Get on her P. Unique, P. Um, uh, space, Unique. Um, and the second person was, of course, Solange with Mad um, featuring Little Wayne. So now on the line we have Annette Brownlee the chairperson of Independent and Peaceful Australia Network to discuss the developments in Venezuela. Good morning, Annette. Good morning, Ayat. How are you? I'm very well. I'm very well. Um, So before we get into the conversation about diplomacy and whatnot, can you tell us about the events that led to this crisis, political crisis? It's quite complex. Um, so I'm not going to be able to explain that in a short time. But what I would um, take you back to is the history of um, U.S. involvement in Latin America. Mm-hmm. And that goes right back, really, to the Cuban um, Revolution and beyond. Uh, many of us remember just the horrific interventions that the United States made during the 70s and 80s in Chile, in Argentina, and so on. So, from my perspective, this is a a a by the United States to make sure that it still has significant and powerful interests protected in in Latin America. Sorry to interrupt you, Anna. Is there any way you can? because we're having trouble hearing you. Is there any way you can move from where you are currently? Right. I will. Um, okay, do perfect. That. Gorgeous. <laughs> yep. I'll we go hear outside. you now. No, no, you're perfect. Is that better? This moment, excellent. Clear as. Oh, that's good. Thank you so much. Okay, so you were okay. saying that there was. Um, the, the, U, the U.S. has been involved in South American. Um, foreign affairs? Yeah, they've been interfering in the affairs of sovereign countries in Latin mm-hmm. America for the, for the last 50 years. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I see what they're doing now with Venezuela as, um, as a, a continuation of that. Yeah. And um, Juan Guado, who is the interim president at the moment, um, he's election or him putting um, his nomination, or not nomination, but his election um, as president is considered a scoop. Is his appointment legal? Not according to the United Nations Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, who continues right up to today to, um, to make 
clear that mm-hmm. the only legally um, elected president of Venezuela continues to be Nicolas Maduro. Mm. And what? Although, um, although the United States has been able to rally the support and recognition of Juan Guaido um, from various um, European allies and indeed from Australia, which uh, we continue to pretty much rubber stamp anything that the United States mm. uh, decides to do. Um, legally, um, Juan Guaido has not got a leg to stand on in his self-proclaimed um, right to the presidency. Right. And the US, um, as we mentioned about interferences, they've put sanctions on, in, on Venezuela. What sanctions have they put on Venezuela and what impact um, will these sanctions have on ordinary Venezuelans? Well, the most recent and most severe sanctions have been on the sale of oil um, coming from Venezuela's oil fields, the um, largest uh, reserves of oil in the world, apparently. Uh, so that that is the most recent. But um, you may have um, read in that press release we put out that the United Nations Special Rapporteur to Venezuela last year um, Alfred Desaius has criticised the US for engaging in economic warfare against mm. Venezuela, which he says is hurting the economy and killing Venezuelans. So this has been going on for quite a long time and has built up to this point, this mm. crisis where people are starving and unable to access the basics to continue their livelihoods. Mm. And... Your line of argument and the line of argument of a lot of people is that Maduro's effectiveness as a politician should be scrutinised. So no one is saying that it shouldn't be questioned, but that the debate needs to happen internally. Why should the Venezuelan people and not the US decide? Oh, it's a pretty basic sort of answer to that. <laughs> you know, if, if you want outcomes that are satisfactory, mm. that meet the needs of the people, the, the decisions about what happens in a country need to be made by the people. So although there is huge um, uh, upheaval in Venezuela, millions of people have left the country because of the shortages of basic supplies. Um, there is still a strong sense that people, the people of Venezuela are the ones that need to be making decisions. I believe Maduro a week or two ago did offer to hold fresh elections and that was just dismissed. Mm. Um, at some point, the United Nations uh, needs to be much more involved with discussions and dialogue and organisations of countries in Latin America need to be there supporting the people of Venezuela in finding a way through this crisis. It is not for the United States to intervene either militarily or economically on a sovereign nation's people. Mm. Bringing the conversation to Australia, according to a statement by the Minister of Foreign Affairs, Maurice Payne, Australia supports the appointment of Juan Guaido as an as interim president. Why should Australia reconsider their position and what diplomatic steps can they take to support Venezuela's autonomy? 
Well, diplomatic steps that can be taken include um, stepping back, to be honest. (laughs) (laughs) What right have we got to be meddling in the affairs of a country halfway around the world? Um, It's just not in our interest. The only interest of Australians that it is in is to actually take a stand and, and, and step back and say... Well, you know, we don't support um, the United States meddling in the affairs of um, Venezuela or any other country, including our own. Um, This is where we can help both the Venezuelans but also the Americans. The leadership in the United States has got so used to Australia just rubber stamping and support their foreign policy Mm. initiatives, their wars, that... um, they can almost take it as a given that Australia is going to publicly support whatever they uh, their next venture is. Mm. And in fact, if we were a good friend of the United States, we would do what good friends in relationships do, and that is when it's when it's right to stand up and say we don't agree, uh, we're not going to participate. We think you should try another approach, um, and we will follow the rules-based order of an international community through the United Nations and look for resolution of this crisis through diplomacy, through talking, through engaging, looking at ways forward that don't involve coercion or uh, military intervention. Beautiful. Thank you so much for your time, Annette. You're welcome. That was Annette Brownlee from the Independent and Peaceful Australian Network discussing the developments in Venezuela why Australia should reconsider their support for um, Joanne's Guada's interim presidency and why a diplomatic response is better than a U.S. military invention, intervention. Sorry, I will upload shortly to our Facebook page, IPAN's website and other alternative media pages analysing the developments in Venezuela. In 2016, 3CR published a book to celebrate the station's 40th birthday. Years in the making, Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR, is a visually stunning account of the people and ideas that make up this dynamic station. At 300 pages, the book includes hundreds of images and over 50 features on programs, people, music and technology from across the decades. 3CR's Radical Radio book is now on sale for just 30 You can get your copy of 3CR's book at the station during business hours at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. Or online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Get a piece of your own history on sale for just $30. 3CR's Radical Radio is available now. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR. We're going to go to our last interview of the show, and it is with Tuesday Breakfast favourite Carly Finley. Carly Finley is an award-winning writer, speaker and appearance activist. She writes on disability and appearance diversity issues for publications including the ABC, Daily Life and SBS. She was named as one of Australia's most influential women in the 2014 Australian Financial Review, and Westpac 100 Women of Influence Awards. She has appeared on ABC's You Can't Ask That and Cyber Hate with Tara Moss and has been a regular on various ABC radio programs. She organised Making History with Access to Fashion, a Melbourne Fashion Week event featuring disabled models. 
Carly identifies as a proud disabled woman, and she lives with a rare skin condition which is called ichthyosis. Carly is based in Victoria, and you can visit her website at carlyfinley.com.au. She joined us, joined us on the line to discuss her new memoir, Say Hello. Thank you so much for joining us this morning, Carly. Thanks so much, <laughs> There are so many questions I want to ask you about this book, but I'm aware that we only have <laughs> 10 minutes, so I'll, I'll try and be uh, brief with my questions. No worries. Um, firstly, can you tell us a bit about the book um, and what inspired you to write it? Yeah, sure. So Say Hello, it's a memoir and a manifesto. So it's a memoir of my life to date. And it's also got some tips on um, for both an audience that have a facial different skin condition or disability and also those without. Um, I've been writing for a long, long time and I wanted to write a book as the next step in my writing career. So that was what inspired me. Um, I, I was reading other memoirs at the time, Clementine Ford, uh, Roxanne Gay and Lindy West particularly, and I thought that I wanted to write something along um, that style. Yeah, and it really does um, reach diverse audiences, I can imagine, as, as you do kind of address um, people who live with disabilities and people who don't and how everyone can kind of, like, broaden their understanding. Um, yeah. And I also love how it's just very... It's diverse in the content as well. You go from just very kind of talking about general life things around love and dating and work, and then you talk about really kind of more serious things around disability activism and mm-hmm. workers' rights, and then you talk about your love of... Um, Savage Garden and Darren Hayes and it just like kind of moves really beautifully between all of these different yeah. themes. Oh, thank you. Well, I guess I needed to put, keep it light and I think one of the hard things about writing about discrimination that I face that others face is not to seem like a victim. Um, so I wanted to balance that with some light stuff. Yeah. Mm, yeah. I wonder if we could unpack a couple of ideas from the book um, perhaps to give listeners a taste who might not have read it already. Um, yeah. One very important point you mentioned is um, often in the past feeling the need to apologise for living with a disability and how you kind of overcame that and you mentioned Stella Young a lot and her work around that. Could you please unpack this idea a little bit? Yeah, sure. So uh, due to my skin condition, I wear a lot of... Uh, I, I use paraffin as an ointment and so that means that things I touch are oily um, that I might leave in behind because my skin sheds and for a long time I would apologize for that and I wouldn't hug people because I'd be scared that I would get them oily or dirty um, and when I was at Stella Young's memorial I hugged her sister and I left a giant face print of mine on her jacket and I apologized and her sister said no don't apologize and I thought you know what no that's right Stella wouldn't have apologized mm-hmm. either so, um, yeah. you know, and that that kind of pressure on me apologize built up for life so it took a long while to shed that and even still I still apologize. Mm. Do you think that there's sort of putting a feminist perspective on this do you think there's a gendered element to that like we're needing to apologize? Yeah absolutely I think there's a there's a gendered Mm. um, slant on it and I think that often women in general apologize for things Um, you know sometimes starting off with a, uh, starting off a sentence, sorry, when there's no need to be, or mm. even I've seen women just apologise for their appearance when they might have messy hair or um, they might not have makeup on and they apologise, and that's quite ridiculous. Yeah, and it's so kind of empowering to kind of learn that you don't have to do that. You know, it's not necessary. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, yeah. And what about in terms of love and uh, uh, things around women's pleasure? Um, can you expand on those ideas that you talk about in the book? Yes. Yeah, so I wrote how hard it is or how it has been for me to find love. And also um, the lack of touch for me was um, prevalent for a long time. So I will be often touched in a medical way, but not in a loving way. And so I guess I endured what is known as skin hunger when you're longing mm. for a touch. Um, and, yeah, so, you know, it took me a long time to find a partner. And that wasn't... Is it, the finding the partner online was really, really hard because people are so judgmental. Yeah, and yeah. so a really important experience to kind of share so people get that understanding. Yeah. Or, yeah. yeah, and I found that it was more important for me to to love myself than to settle for someone, yeah, that was going to treat me badly. Mm. Mm. And then you also talk about ideas around love and the role of uh, the role of the media and kind of shaping people's understandings or how people with disabilities might be desexualized and, um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's, I, I think that we, we don't see disability in a, sexual way very often or people with disabilities, especially in a sexual way. And so um, that that's really important for us, particularly on social media, I think, to show our true selves and to show that, um, you know, we, we are sexual beings or mm. um, want pleasure or can be in relationships or um, are of different, um, uh, what's it called, sexual orientations. So, yeah. I think we don't see that diversity enough, but obviously um, the disability community is very diverse. So Yeah, and I think yeah. this really feeds into my next question about representation uh, more broadly. Um, I was reading an article recently that talked about um, Brian Cranston and Janelle Monet recently cast to play characters with disabilities. Um, yeah. And I guess just feeds into this issue around like who gets to play certain roles and why it might be an issue for um, people who don't have disabilities that are playing these characters in in films and TV shows. And I was wondering if I could get your take on that. Yeah, I mean, I think in the in the disability community, the term for that um, is cripping up. So it's a non-disabled actor playing a disabled character, and they might um, put on an accent or you know, put on a sort of a disability slur in their accent or um, have a prosthetic uh, disfigurement on their face or be, you know, CGI with their body so that they might might look like an amputee, um, but they're not actually disabled. So then the jobs don't go to disabled people, there's no opportunities, but it also starts with the, um, you know, who's taking... Um, on disabled people in the in, in sorry in the um, university context, you know, are there are there places for disabled people in film school? Is is film school even accessible enough for people to get mm. in? So um, I think that there's a lot of issues there, and I know that um, there's this great um, actor Rachel Edmonds who mm-hmm. put on a show at Fringe last year, and Rachel um, highlighted this difficulty where ableism and inaccessibility starts at film school. Right, so it's like from the very beginning that people might yeah. not be kind of, they'll be excluded from these spaces and then that would feed into the kind of casting process. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, 
I might move on to the next question. I'm just aware of the time. Uh, mm-hmm. So that you write um, about issues around workers' rights, and you discuss that the right to request like, flexible work in the Fair Work Act occurred in 2009, but it wasn't until 2013 that it was amended to include people with disabilities. However, mm-hmm. you also state in your memoir that employers can still refuse. Um, could you sort of um, sort of expand on this and perhaps how it's impacted your work life? Yeah, sure. So I worked full-time for the government for some time, for, for 15 years, and one of the reasons I chose the government was because of the um, supposed flexible nature of it um, and that I would be able to take sick leave. You know, there, there was quite a bit of sick leave, I think 20 days we got, and also um, an, an option to purchase leave if needed which I often did, um, and when I felt myself getting a bit overwhelmed with work and my, my body um, got thicker and thicker because of that, I asked for some part-time work um, because it was a flexible workplace. Mm. And I saw that women who went um, on maternity leave could get that option, and I was told no, and I said, what happens if I got pregnant? Would I be able to get flexible work then? And they said yes. I said, mm. well, how is that? different. Um, So I think that flexible work should apply to everybody Um, and it wasn't until I actually got a part-time job um, here at Melbourne Springs now that I I realised this this law because I had never seen the statement of um, employment because I'd I'd only ever changed jobs within the government Mm. and so I thought, wow, if only I'd known that when I was there and I didn't request flexible work because of my health this time. I'm not doing that because of my health, although it has had excellent impacts on it, I'm doing it because I've got a freelance career as well, mm-hmm. um, and this allows me to do both. Um, but I think it's so, so important for employers to support all of their workers, especially yeah. um, disabled people, especially parents. Yeah. Not, not making a choice, not making an either-or. Absolutely, and it's really not good enough that people should be afraid maybe to bring this up about what their needs are in a workplace you know, for fear that they'll be turned down or that there isn't that understanding in those spaces. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think that there's so much proving of um, your your status or your, um, uh, you know, disclosure of your diagnosis to get mm. a, a result and you shouldn't have to do that. Yeah. Mm. And so, okay, I'm just trying to select which last couple of questions to ask you. Okay. Um, maybe we, um, would you mind touching on, the the proud through practicing poem that you talk about in the book because I think that was really powerful. Yeah, so that was another thing I guess that um, Stella Young had taught me through her um, role as a writer comedian, and, and she would often refer to Laura her she's work. You get proud by practicing was poem that Laura wrote. Um, Laura was a disability activist, a feminist, um, and she had this. She wrote a great poem called "You Get Proud by Practicing." Um, her um, Laura's partner uh, Laura's deceased now but her partner gave me permission to reproduce a little bit of it mm. um, I can read a little bit of it now and that would be beautiful um, thank you yeah and I think it's the importance of knowing that disabled uh, we, as disabled people we can be proud in our body but it takes a lot of work um, Laura writes or wrote if you are not proud for who you are for what you say, for how you look, if every time you stop to think of yourself, you do not see yourself glowing with golden light, 
Do not, therefore, give up on yourself. You can get proud. You do not need a better body, a purer spirit, or a PhD to be proud. You do not need a lot of money, a handsome boyfriend, or a nice car. You do not need to be able to walk, or see, or hear, or use big complicated words, or do any of those things that you can't do to be proud. A caseworker cannot make you proud, or a doctor. You only need to practice. You only need more practice. You get proud by practicing. Two standards of it. That is so beautiful. Thank you so yeah. much for reading that. And I know there's another um, verse in the book if um, listeners would like to hear more. Thank you so much, Carly. Thank you. So I think we might have to wrap up the interview, but did also um, just want to mention that you are speaking at the Wheeler Centre on the 28th of March at an event yep. called Riding the Body, which sounds fantastic. So uh, we can share the link to that event on our Facebook page as well. Um, and if, um, if our listeners do want to get their hands on the book, how can they go about that? Yes, yeah, sure. Um, the book should be available at all good bookstores and department stores um, and also on my blog, carlyfindlay.com.au there are links to ebooks and um, online ordering if you need mm-hmm. and if you're listening to it from overseas to this interview from overseas it's currently only in Australian release but there are some ways to get it overseas and the links are on my blog beautiful thank you so much Carly thank you that's all we have time for today we'd like to thank all of our incredible guests um, it was a busy show and we're looking forward to being on air next Tuesday thank you